Philip no longer fears the vicar. Welcome back to the Hemingway list. That's our discussion prompt for today. Philip no longer fears the vicar. He's grown up. He's a man now. Um, it was really cool to see him so comfortable to push back against the vicar and to sort of see the vicar for who he is, Mr. Carey. Um, sort of he knows his ways by now. Uh, and to talk, and the, the way he kind of toyed with him about the whole portrait thing I thought was really cool. Cutilli says, looks like the number of funeral wreaths were the social media likes of that era. <laughs> yeah, poor old Mrs. Carey. Um, I wonder how she went in the end, the full tally of wreaths. That's a pretty good observation, Cutilli. Hilarious. Acoustic Eel says, doesn't fear the vicar and even goes as far as judging him for taking an extra piece of cake. Our boy is growing up. <laughs> yeah, he does. He kind of, he's got him all figured out now, doesn't he? He judges him on the cake. He knows his game with the whole... He knows that his ego wants a portrait. He wants that portrait, but he's trying to be a bit coy about it, like making starting off with some little hints like, oh, you could do a portrait of me. What do you think of that? What a silly idea I've just had, huh? But, uh, you know, he wants it. He wants that portrait. Uh, we have slipped back into the writing style of earlier sections, says Acoustic Eels. Um, earlier sections of the book. And that makes me laugh at the inappropriate times. Yeah, you're right, actually. The writing style was different in this chapter, wasn't it? It was simple and clean. Easy. Uh, the bit with the cake, and then the bit with trying to get more wreaths than the other lady, I cackled when he said, it's certainly an opportunity which isn't likely to reoccur. Regarding Mr. Carey using Louise's death as an opportunity to fire Mary Ann. Good stuff. Entrepper says, I feel like from this point forward, through the novel, Philip's problems will be more those of a man and less of a boy. He has crossed some sort of threshold. He did seem different, didn't he, in this chapter? And um, probably not that he's changed in this chapter, but seeing him stand up to his, you know, his, well, stepdad, his uncle... Um, in that way, he's, what, what would you say? Yeah, his uncle, but he, it's his sort of dad figure, father figure. Seeing him stand up to him and sort of toy with him in that way was when you realised, oh, Phil's changed. Phil's really coming to his own here. Laura Weistich said, this chapter had some great life lessons. Maybe Philip was ahead of his time, trying different careers and giving up when it didn't work out for him. Whatever the case, he's figured out a lot more about life than the vicar. It is to be applauded and in some ways envied, what Philip did there. Um, I mean, not that I didn't do the same thing. I worked a good career as a business analyst and I was quite good at it. And I was earning very good money, um, but just didn't enjoy it, you know. And, and it didn't really matter that I had good money and that I had a good career and that my parents were proud of my progress in that space and all that kind of thing. Those things are nice, but when you go to work every day and just do not enjoy it, um, yeah, I think it takes it takes a bit of guts. But it, it's something to be proud of if you've moved on from a job like that. And I'm always proud that I did that. Because um, I did take a big risk. It's, you know what it is? It's like some people are like... It's a character trait for them to kind of complain about their day's work. Like every, nearly every time you see them and catch up, 
there'll be a bit where they kind of vent. That's what they do. They vent about the day's work. And, you know, as the recipient of that venting, it's, it's in a way, it's a kind of a, uh, a compliment. It's, it's some, in some ways, it's an honor to be the recipient of that venting about work because it means that person trusts you to vent, right? But at the same time, if you kind of like blur it out a bit and just look at the body language and look at how they're talking to you and they vent, it's almost like you're a stand-in for the person they want to be angry at. And you, you feel like you're receiving all this like anger and, and bitterness about something that happened at work that day. And um, I really can't stand that. And I, I was doing that with my old job. You know, I was venting every day and I just thought, this must be by now like um, like typical of me. When people meet me, they must expect me to grumble about work and to almost give them that negative feeling as if I'm angry at them. And it's not a good look. And I still know people like that today. And, you know, it's, you just say to them, like, if you're not happy, you can do another job. Like, I, I hate to see you daily getting into this mood of, you know, uh, getting upset on a daily basis. Anyway, why am I down this side street of a, uh, of a thought? I've gone way off track. Um, oh, I suppose because we were talking about Philip kind of owning the fact that he's discovered that the career isn't for him and not because it was upsetting him in the same way as I'm speaking, but he's just, he has determined this is maybe not the best life choice. And there's that sunken costs fallacy that I speak of and, and that's a hard thing to overcome. So, and he's done that. So good on him. He's still young. The world is still at his feet. Let's read the next chapter because I don't know what I'm talking about. This is chapter four, uh, sorry, 53. I didn't know until we read this book that Al stands for 50 in Roman numerals. You'd think I'd know that. Um, <clears throat> oh, sorry, it's springtime here in Melbourne and it's hay fever season. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, I have to say this uh, advertisement. Before we continue, here is an advertisement for you. Personal Fable, my third novel, my latest novel, came out in March of this year, 2020. Not the best time to launch a book, but the book is getting good reviews. Um, it hasn't got less than a four-star rating so far. It's sitting on 4.82 on Goodreads, which I'm very proud of. Um, that's only from a handful of reviews, 11. Not that I looked like yesterday. <laughs> but uh, the point is, everyone who's read it seemed to have enjoyed reading it. Uh, and I'm very proud of that. So, Personal Fable is available at andalewis.com if you want to read my third novel. I didn't even tell you what it's about yet, but, um, you know, go read the blurb if you want that. <laughs> uh, okay. Here we go. Chapter 53. Taking the paper with him, Mr. Carey retired to his study. Philip changed his chair for that in which his uncle had been sitting. It was the only comfortable one in the room, and looked out of the window at the pouring rain, even in that sad weather, there was something restful about the green fields that stretched to the horizon. There was an intimate charm in the landscape, which he did not remember even to have noticed before. Two years in France had opened his eyes to the beauty of his own countryside. He thought with a smile of his uncle's remark, it was lucky that the turn of his mind tended to flippancy. He had begun to realise that a great loss he had sustained, 
in the death of his father and mother. That was one of the differences in his life which prevented him from seeing things in the same way as other people. The love of parents for their children is the only emotion which is quite disinterested. Among strangers he had grown up as best he could, but he had seldom been used to the patience of forbearance. He prided himself on his self-control. He had been whipped into him, sorry, it had been whipped into him by the mockery of his fellows. Then they called him cynical and callous. He had acquired calmness for, of demeanour, and under most circumstances, an unruffled exterior, so that now he could not show his feelings. People told him he was unemotional, but he knew that he was at the mercy of his emotions. An accidental kindness touched him so much that sometimes he did not venture to speak in order to not portray the unsteadiness of his voice. He remembered the bitterness of his life at school, the humiliation which he had endured, the banter which had made him morbidly afraid of making any, making himself ridiculous, and he remembered the loneliness he had felt since, faced with the world, the disillusion and the disappointment caused by the difference between what it promised to his active imagination and what it gave. But notwithstanding, he was able to look at himself from the outside and smile with amusement. By Jove, if I weren't flippant, I should hang myself, he thought cheerfully. His mind went back to the answer he had given his uncle when he had asked him what he learnt in Paris. He had learnt a great deal more than he told him. A conversation with Cronshaw had stuck in his memory, and one phrase he had used, a commonplace one enough, had set his brain working. My dear fellow, Cronshaw said, there's no such thing as abstract morality. When Philip ceased to believe in Christianity, he felt that a great weight was taken from his shoulders, casting off the responsibility which weighed down every action. When every action was infinitely important for the welfare of his immortal soul, he experienced a vivid sense of liberty, but he knew that now that this was an illusion. When he put away the religion in which he had been brought up, he had kept unimpaired the morality which was part and parcel of it. He made up his mind, therefore, to think things out for himself. He determined to be swayed by no prejudices. He swept away the virtues and the vices and established laws of good and evil with the idea of finding... Sorry, I read that wrong. He swept away the virtues and the vices, the established laws of good and evil, with the idea of finding out the rules of life for himself. He did not know whether rules were necessary at all. That was one of the things he wanted to discover. Clearly much that seemed valid seemed so only because he had taught, he had been taught it from his earliest youth. He had read a number of books, but they did not help him much for they were based in a morality of Christianity, and even the writers who emphasised the fact that they did not believe in it were never satisfied till they had framed a system of ethics in accordance with that of the Sermon of the Mount. It seemed hardly worthwhile to read a long volume in order to learn that you ought to behave exactly like everybody else. Philip wanted to find out how he ought to behave, and he thought he could prevent himself from being influenced by the opinions that surround him. But meanwhile, he had to go on living, and until he formed a theory of conduct, he made himself a provisional rule. Follow your inclinations with due regard to the policeman round the corner. He thought the best thing he had gained in Paris was a complete liberty of spirit, and he felt himself at last absolutely free. In a desultory way, he had read a good deal of philosophy, and he looked forward with delight to the leisure of the next few months. He began to read at haphazard, 
He entered upon each system with a little thrill of excitement, expecting to find in each some guide by which he could rule his conduct. He felt himself like a traveller in unknown countries, and he pushed forward. The enterprise fascinated him. He read emotionally, as other men read pure literature, and his heart leaped as he discovered in noble words what himself he had obscurely felt. His mind was concrete and moved with difficulty in regions of the abstract, but even when he could not follow the reasoning, it gave him a curious pleasure to follow the tortuosities of thoughts that threaded their nimble way on the edge of the incomprehensible. Sometimes great philosophers seemed to have nothing to say, but at others he recognised a mind with which he felt himself at home. He was like the explorer in Central Africa, who comes suddenly upon wide uplands with trees in them and stretches of meadow, so that he might fancy himself in an English park. He delighted in the robust common sense of Thomas Hobbes. Spinoza filled him with awe. He had never before come in contact with a mind so noble, so unreproachable, so unapproachable and austere. It reminded him of that statue by Rodin, L'Argue d'Ariane, which has passionate, he passionately admired. And then there was Hume, the scepticism of that charming philosopher that touched a kindred note in Philip, and reveling in the lucid style which seemed able to put complicated thought into simple words, musical and measured, he read as he might have read a novel, a smile of pleasure on his lips, but in none could he find exactly what he wanted. He had read somewhere that every man was born a Platonist, an Aristotelian, a Stoic, or an Epicurean, and the history of George Henry Lewes, beside telling you that philosophy was all moonshine, was there to show that the thought of each philosopher was inseparably connected with the man he was. When you knew that, that you could guess, to a great extent, the philosophy he wrote. It looked as though you did not act in a certain way because you thought in a certain way, but rather that you thought in a certain way because you were made in a certain way. Truth had nothing to do with it. There was no such thing as truth. Each man was his own philosopher, and the elaborate systems which the great men of the past had composed were only valid for the writers. The thing, then, was to discover what one was, and one system of philosophy would devise itself. It seemed to Philip that there were three things to find out, man's relation to the world he lives in, man's relation with the men among whom he lives, and finally man's relation to himself. He made an elaborate plan of study. The advantage of living abroad is that coming in contact with the manners and customs of the people among whom you live, you observe them from the outside and see that they have not the necessity which those who practice them believe. You cannot fail to discover that the beliefs which to you are self-evident to the foreigner are absurd. The year in Germany, the long stay in Paris, had prepared Philip to receive the sceptical teaching which came to him now with such a feeling of relief. He saw that nothing was good, and nothing was evil. Things were merely adapted to an end. He read The Origin of Species. It seemed to offer an explanation of much that troubled him. He, he, sorry, it seemed to offer an explanation of much that troubled him. He was like an explorer now, who was reason, has reasoned that certain natural features must present themselves, and beating up a broad river finds here the tributary that he expected, there the fertile populated plains, and further on the mountains. When some great discovery is made, the world is surprised afterwards that it was not accepted at once, and even on those who acknowledged the truth, the effect is unimportant. The first readers of The Origin of Species accepted it within their reason, 
but their emotions, which are the ground of conduct, were untouched. Philip was born a generation after this great book was published, and much that horrified its contemporaries had passed into the feeling of the time, so that he was able to accept it with a joyful heart. He was intensely moved by the grandeur of the struggle for life, and the ethical rule which it suggested seemed to fit in with the predispositions. He said to himself that might was right. Society stood on one side, an organism with its own laws of growth and self-preservation, while the individual stood on the other. The actions which were to the advantage of society it termed virtuous, and those which were not it called vicious. Good and evil meant nothing more than that. Sin was a prejudice from which the free man should rid himself. Society had three arms in its contest with the individual, laws, public opinion and conscience. The first two could be met by guile. Guile is the only weapon of the weak against the strong. Common opinion put the matter well when it stated that sin consisted in being found out, but conscience was the traitor within the gates. It fought in each heart the battle of society and caused the individual to throw himself a wanton sacrifice to the prosperity of the enemy. For it was clear that the two were irreconcilable. A state, the state and the individual conscious of himself, that uses the individual for its own ends, trampling upon him, if he thwarts it, rewarding him with medals, pensions, honours when he serves it faithfully. This, strong only in his independence, threads his way through the state for convenience's sake, paying his money or service for be certain benefits, but with no sense of obligation and indifferent to the rewards, ask only to be left alone. He is the independent traveller who uses Cook's ticket because they save trouble, but looks with good-humoured contempt on the personally conducted parties. The free man can do no wrong. He does everything he likes, if he can. His power is the only measure of his morality. He recognises the laws of the state, and he can break them without sense of sin. But if he is punished, he accepts the punishment with rancour. Society has the power. But if for the individual there was no right and no wrong, then it seemed to Philip that conscience lost its power. It was with a cry of triumph that he seized the knave and flung him from his breast. But he was no nearer to the meaning of life than he had been before. Why the world was, where, was there and what men had come into existence for at all was inexplicable as ever. Surely there must be some reason. He thought of Cronshaw's parable of the Persian carpet. He offered it as a solution of the riddle, and mysteriously he stated that it was no answer at all unless you found it out for yourself. I wonder what the devil he meant, Philip smiled. And so on the last day of September, eager to put into practice all these new theories of life, Philip, with sixteen hundred pounds and his club foot, set out, for the second time to London to make his third start at life. Alright, there we go, another chapter down, waxing philosophical. Quite enjoyed that. Weirdly enough, I know that most of you probably expect that when it comes to any kind of religion talk, I usually tune out, but um, I don't know. It was well phrased, um, and it wasn't, 
I mean, maybe it's because I'm not religious and it was him coming away from religious. So it might be a personal bias. But also beyond that, the style of writing was unpretentious. And I find so often with these books that when they start to move towards a spiritual or religious conversation within the prose, the writing becomes very pretentious very quickly. I didn't find that in this one, which I quite liked. All right, have your say about this chapter over at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you hmm, tomorrow.